0: Hi, my name is Megan, and I'm a trans woman.
1: And I'm Nate, assigned male at birth, and living a male life.
0: We're going to have a conversation about what it means to live an authentic life.
1: If you're trans, think you might be trans, or know trans people but aren't one yourself, we have something interesting to talk about.
0: Our goal is to normalize talking about the human experience. Welcome, Welcome to, to the conversation.
1: Good morning, Megan.
0: Good morning, Nate.
1: So uh, I would like to start out today by saying a heartfelt thank you to our listeners and our patrons. I never understood when I heard other people do that what that really meant, but I get it now because without people listening, it'd just be you and I sitting around having coffee and talking all day. Yeah, and not really... What's the real benefit to the world of that? So I'd just like to say thank you to all of you.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, even if you're just a listener and you've checked out our Patreon and you know, maybe it's not for you. That's okay.
1: Tell your friends. That's for us. We, yeah. we, we like your friends too.
0: Absolutely. And then a special thank you to our patrons. Mm, your, absolutely. Your donations. You're making this possible. Exactly. You
1: are getting close to us fulfilling our budgetary goals, which is a pretty big deal to us considering everything's been out of pocket experiment so far of uh, whether or not this is going to go or not. So it's just been really cool to see actual support.
0: Absolutely. So our topic today, Megan, what are we talking about this morning? So I had an idea that we do like a little mini series on some of the more ancient sources um, that we have for queer people that existed throughout history on ones that we know they existed. There's not a lot of information about them because, of course, queer people existed before 1980. Well, there should be good documentation after 1980, though. That's what's important, right? Well, I mean, yes and no. Okay. So, wait. You're saying that there were gay people before 1980? Correct. Um, There were actually quite a few. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Like 10? (laughs) Well, I have... I have a few today, and as I do some more research and, you know, find more We will revisit more more
1: as we keep unearthing that there may be potentially other alleged homosexuals through all of history. Absolutely. Wonderful.
0: Okay. So, surprise and delight us. So, one of the things that is really important to recognize when we're looking at especially really ancient sources, but even more modern ones, that a lot of the time, historians— had a tendency to apply their particular worldview on the subjects they're writing about.
1: Which is a problem for historians and uh, historiography since the very beginning. Absolutely. To examine a source not through the filter of modern culture is something that historians always have and always probably will struggle with.
0: And so that's definitely something we need to keep in mind. But there's also a phenomenon that the internet has called, when we're looking specifically at queer history and like queer people, is that instead of ever explicitly stating that they had any kind of relationship or, uh, you know, whatever it is, they have a tendency to call them, and then they were roommates. This isn't history. That particular thing is a broader understanding or a broader phrase to mean that the historian is actively hiding their queerness. So, for example, they would talk about a woman who lived with another woman through her entire life. They shared a bedroom and were seen kissing many times. However, she never married a man, so she, you know... So they were roommates. So they were roommates. That's the level of obscuring that the historians do. And so that's where the phrase, and they were roommates, comes from.
1: On the plus side where history by its very nature is a conservative uh, endeavor because it's conserving the past and putting the credit there rather than looking to advance. There are movements and groups within modern historians that are looking to do things like document social history, looking at the underside of history and finding other points of view to document consistent timelines from beginning to end and paint coherent pictures of subgroups. So on the plus side, history is evolving.
0: Yes. And we have a whole group of people who are specifically looking at queer history and try to preserve queer history.
1: Oh, brilliant. Um, I love the modern age. I love that research is something that so many people have access to. And now there are forums for people to discuss these things more openly
0: than ever before. And uh, it's just a really exciting time to be alive. Absolutely. But I'm going to do my little part here and tell you about a couple people So the very first one that I have is Sappho of Lesbos, who we believe was around 630 to 570 BCE is when she is believed to have been alive. She was a poet, a lyricist on the island of Lesbos in modern day Greece. She was a very prolific poet, having about, we assume, about 10,000 lines of poetry over the course of her life. Unfortunately, we're down to 650 lines remain of her poetry.
1: And any good historian still has a sinking, sad feeling in their gut at the sacking of Alexandria at the library. Absolutely. Uh, Anyway, please continue.
0: So, the majority of her remaining poetry talks about her love of other women, to the point where one of her fully complete works is called the Ode to Aphrodite, mm-hmm. who was the Greek goddess of love. For those who are unfamiliar, and she was basically in her poetry, she would be stricken by Aphrodite, and you know fall over at the sight of beautiful women.
1: Wow, which is
0: pretty gay. <laughs>
1: That's um, the pretty gay seal of approval there.
0: Yeah, and it's believed that the terms lesbian come from her specifically because she's of Lesbos. Of um, lesbos. Right. Um, so Lesbos lesbian as you know as it translates the through the through the centuries, and yeah. then also the term sapphic, mm-hmm. meaning loving woman, is also believed to have been derived. And from
1: sapphists her. was another term at certain points in our history for women who loved women. Absolutely, They would go around as sophists and things like that, sounding Greek and intellectual, of course, but they knew what it meant.
0: Yeah, same thing. And then through my research about her, I found that literally throughout the ages, there are historians who are trying to defend her position, claiming that she's heterosexual and that she just has a really strong friendship and appreciation for the beauty of women, but is not actually like attracted or you know wants to have adult fun time with these women which i think is hilarious because she herself actually has a response to it in the remaining 650 lines and what did she say she said oh yes i have married a man named kirklos of andros And, you know, has forsaken all the women. And it's important to note that Kirklos of Andros actually roughly translates to Dick Alcoccus of Man Island. (laughs) Which, can you not imagine a more like, oh yeah, I married Dick Alcoccus of Man Island. Yeah, I'm totally straight. (laughs) Are you kidding? (laughs) Sappho of Lesbos, probably lesbian. <laughs> okay.
1: Oh, and before 1980. Wow. We had, a, we had an early start. Okay. Oh, yes. I'm back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, I surprised you with that one. I thought that was hilarious. And I, it was so funny, I needed to share that
1: with our audience. So anybody who's looking for names, uh, we will at some point do a, an episode on names. And if you're looking to go through a new identity change, and you want to be called...
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's uh, a fancy letter. Uh, I mean. Okay,
1: so who is our next guest of honor
0: today? Our next guest of honor is the Emperor Elgabalus. El she, um, and I use that specifically, was the youngest imperator of Rome, which is the early form of emperor, at the age of 18. She was known for her absolute little interest in governing anything, being in charge of anything, which goes with that era's Roman debauchery, as it has been called. I should say she ruled from 218 to 222 CE,
1: Also, that's uh, before 1980, right, on the timeline? Uh, Quite a bit. Okay, just checking.
0: Um, But uh, yeah, very important. She was known to, rather than, again, governing anything, she was known for dancing both naked and in women's clothes around multiple temples, palaces, pretty much all over Rome.
1: And I'm taking it by your emphasis on that, that she was born in a male body.
0: Oh, yes. I say she because, we'll get into it later, pretty strongly was likely a trans woman. Okay. So, assigned male at birth, but wanted to be female. Now, that's an interesting thing, too,
1: then. After some of our discussions on dysphoria and things like that, to identify far more on the female side of things, but then to be completely content dancing around naked in front of people. You're not hiding anything. That's true. So, Uh, there's a level of, I guess, pride and ownership to be seen in this. If it's good enough for an ancient Roman emperor, it's good enough for somebody
0: else. Absolutely. And they have... There are some instances of hermaphroditic folks that were seen as, like, touched by Aphrodite or Venus at the Roman era who were given, you know, the gift of having multiple genitalia that were seen as beautiful. But she's also known.
1: No, go ahead. I I, I was going to say we were dancing naked before I completely interrupted you.
0: Oh, yeah. Dancing naked, dancing in women's clothes, again, around palaces and temples. She's also known for, quote, unquote, marrying a slave named Heracles, who, in every source that I could find for this, was quoted as, he was quite well endowed. And so, I'm guessing this is
1: a different Heracles than the philosopher. It's probably somebody completely different. Oh, no. Um, and we're several hundred years later. Yes. 600 or so.
0: But he was a slave who was just very big, and well-endowed. We've all got to have some attributes, I suppose. (laughs) So she was also known as a prankster around the palace. Reminds me of somebody I work with. Anyway, go ahead. She is possibly one of the first inventors of the whoopee cushion. It is traced back that she took animal bladders, filled them with air, put them on seats, and would thoroughly annoy all of her retainers and guests and whatnot. And then finally, where we get the majority of what we think she was trans as opposed to bisexual or anything is that there's an account that says she stated, "I would give the entirety of Rome to a surgeon who could make me a woman." Wow, that's powerful. Which I would, I would absolutely do that too.
1: <laughs> if Rome were yours to give, yeah. on the plus side, in modern times, I don't that
0: you'd have to give up all of Rome to accomplish that. It is also believed that that statement potentially inspired Shakespeare's "My Kingdom for a Horse." Yeah. But that is apocryphal. Wasn't able to find any good sources on that one.
1: Well, we know Shakespeare's extremely well read and pulled from many, many, many sources and was a great humorist at the same time. So it's entirely possible. It is.
0: And you said there were there were four that we were going to discuss. Yes, I have two more stories today, okay. or at least accounts. The next one, most people probably know who this is, but probably don't know what we're going to talk about. The next person is Gaius Julius Caesar. The Julius Caesar. That Julius Caesar. Okay. Uh, you're right. I don't
1: know what we're going to talk about.
0: So... He's, of course, well-known for conquering Gaul, his attempted coup of the Roman Republic and the end of his life, where 29 senators stabbed him, although 66 signed off on it, just like all group projects. And like all
1: group projects, most of them didn't do the work.
0: Exactly. So that's where he grew his fame and became the Caesar that most historians like to talk about. What is often less talked about is that when he was in his 20s, he was used as a diplomat specifically to the kingdom of Bithynia, which is believed around, like, Syria area. I don't remember exactly where it is. The whole point of him was he was a patrician, but he was a low, poor patrician. So this was a way to make money and, you know, still have influence. But he was sent over there to reinforce diplomatic relations with the king of Bithynia and then to help Rome build a navy because Rome was always bad at building navies. Okay. Supposedly during that time, Caesar had an affair with King Nicomedes the And it's important to note that in this period in Roman society, having adult fun time with men was totally fine. Right. Except you needed to be the dominant one. So you need to be the top. I see. Being the bottom or the submissive partner was seen as less desirable or not manly.
1: I wonder if that was officially cultural. And that was what was played on top, like officially that made the superficial cultural news or if that was actually had anything to do with personal preference or if behind closed doors, it was still a lot more up for debate. You know, I don't know. Because here's the thing. At the end of the report of their time, the higher ranking one would clearly report, well, yes, of course I was the top. That's –
0: Well, yeah, because why wouldn't I be? Right. But behind the doors, it's a completely different thing. Absolutely. Anyway. So, yeah, it was rumored that Caesar was the submissive partner in that pairing
1: which so, he would have been had he not become the Julius Caesar we were talking about because that.
0: he was young and lower rank and trying to build diplomatic relations he, right like he probably was
1: that makes the most uh, sense
0: no shame in it now so he was forever referred to even throughout his lifetime especially by his detractors um, as he was gaining power he was forever known as the Caesar who conquered Gaul but the queen of Bithynia
1: So taking a look at that practice in context, going from ancient Greece and then current through that period of Rome. So in ancient Greece, it was a completely normal thing for affluent families to put their younger boys in with uh, older male tutors and teachers and influential people. And they were tutored in math and the arts and sex. And that was what they did. There's a very by modern Again, modern filter, I would say I was about to introduce this as a very funny plate, but it's not funny, actually, in historical context. It was just accurate. So at these big gatherings and things like that in these religious festivals, the people who were well-to-do would drink plenty to excess. And then uh, one of the positions around them that they had, that, like Butler or a footman or somebody else, they had a younger boy who would walk around with a urine jug and would hold the jug up at about head level while the older man peed in it. This is depicted in art. just This is part of the practice. This is one of the things people do. So there was not this same clear and careful line keeping people from being aware that sex was a thing. And so people were just far more open with it and taught it differently. And I'm, I'm not proposing that we should do that or that it's appropriate for this day and age, but that's the way it was back then. So looking at it that way where there is this relationship between older and younger people, and that's the dynamic. It wasn't... Like a weird – modern standards would call it a weird pedophile thing, and you should certainly seek help. At that time, it was a different cultural thing. Yeah. And then it went on. And Granted, there were many people who thought it was wrong and objected to it, but at the same time it was the practice in the in the aristocracy. So that would then carry on to diplomacy. It makes sense just a few hundred years later going on to diplomacy where sex would be a part of that.
0: Especially since the Romans – when they conquered Greece, we like, we like your culture. Right. Taking we, it. we took as much of the culture <laughs> they wanted and carried on because,
1: because Greece had amazing culture in so many ways. And so that that would become part of it is no surprise. And there's a very direct and obvious lineage between these various practices, cementing growth, secure relationships in certain hierarchies in diplomacy and politics.
0: Absolutely, Homophobia comes from the root being the... The submissive one having a negative connotation. And so, not good. Because we'll see it in this next story that I'm going to go over. We're going to see that same concept be applied. And it's interesting because of the two accounts that we have of this story, they're both written by historians who were influenced by Rome and by later Christianity. And had a very particular view, whereas the culture they're describing didn't necessarily have that.
1: Oh, tell me this story.
0: So, this story is about Asmund and Aaron. It would have been during roughly the 11th century. Okay. But it wasn't written down in those two accounts. What part of the world? It would have been either in Iceland or Norway. I don't believe the story has a specific location.
1: So well after the major influence of the Roman Empire and just outside the Roman Empire's borders.
0: Yes. So these are about two Vikings. Okay. Like I said, there are two accounts of them. Asmund and Aaron were two warriors. So Asmund is the strongest in his village. Aaron comes through and they meet. They're both very big, very strong for their you know respective period. And they wrestle and become very good friends very, very quickly.
1: Roommate kind of friends?
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so they become so close, in fact, that they, quote, share an oath of friendship. This oath of friendship includes things that Definitely, were not that common for those swearing like an oath of fealty, or like I will be your man in your, you know, in your group for raiding, or or whatever. Because oaths
1: were common in that part Absolutely of the world at that time.
0: Common during that period. You have the Jarl, then you have the Thane, and then you have the free folk who all swear oaths to either the Thane or the Jarl, depending on what Which holding they're pretty in.
1: standard for medieval Europe yeah, as it's, a whole. Yeah, it's, it's
0: a medieval structure right. where you've got these ranks of different people. So oaths, totally not abnormal. What is abnormal is that not only did they swear the oath that they would fight for each other in right. battle, Aeron, being the higher rank of the two, offered half of his men half of his wealth, and half of his land to Asmund, which is not something that you do. Outside of domestic partnership. Yeah, outside of like someone you marry to. That was
1: a common marriage oath.
0: Yes, because you split the land, the wealth, and the men, because, shockingly, there were female Vikings who led raids and did everything that men did. One of the weird quirks of Viking culture was when... New territory was being settled. A man could take a torch. And as far as he could run to circumvent that land, that would be considered his hold. A woman could do the exact same thing. She just had to lead a cow. Ultimately, what that comes down to is that men ended up having more land and therefore a little bit more sway and more power. Because you can run with a torch. You can pull a cow as much as that cow wants to move. Not as much as, you know, how fast you can go. But yeah, the other Very important thing with this story is that they swore that oath, and in that oath, there are two different accounts of this. The first account says that they swore an oath that should one of them fall in battle, the other will be interred with them forever, be buried alive with them.
1: Live burial was a thing at that time, too.
0: We don't know if that was particularly common, but in this particular story... One account says they'd be buried forever. Another account said that the one who survived would be buried for three days with them. So they'd spend time as they traversed to either Valhalla, ideally in this period, or to Hell, the Norse version of Hell, not the Christian version, uh, which is a little bit different. So in this story, they go on a raid, and Aaron is struck with an arrow, possibly in the arm, possibly in the chest. Ultimately, he dies. He dies. So he gets taken back to their hold, and Asmund is buried with Aaron. And in this period of time, in this three days, they're buried with his horse alive, his dog alive, food for Asmund and Aaron, but mostly for Asmund, <laughs> mostly, uh, as Aaron is dead. In this period, Aaron awakens and becomes a dragger which is basically it's kind of like a zombie, but a little bit more like a ravenous hunger is kind of how it's described. And he proceeds to eat everything, the horse, the dog, the food. Um, and when he starts looking at Asmund, they get into a fight. Asmund barely makes it out alive out of the tomb and, you know, gets his way out and escapes. And then there's more to this story, but it's not really relevant to the queer look at these two But to have a story that, yeah, it's got a supernatural element. You know, there's a draugr, super interesting.
1: But that you end up with two roommates who are close enough
0: where they want to be buried together should one of them die. And two of the manliest. Manliest roommates. In Norse culture that you had either manly or not. And to have two guys who are. Hyper manly. Yeah, the peak who are like, Yeah. We're together. We're together. We're, we've sworn an oath, you know, a marriage oath, most likely. It's just later transcribed into what, you know, the friendship. Of course. Yeah, because they're just friends. They're just roommates.
1: But they're really close. But they're really close. So close that they can have half each other's stuff and be buried together in the event of death.
0: Absolutely. Okay. In these accounts, similar to Caesar, there's a concept that was transcribed called ergi, which is basically that same idea that to be dominant is manly, to be not dominant is not manly. So you lose or gain manliness depending on who's topping. Which,
1: actually, anyway, is kind of just fine because. Many people are not trying to accrue more manliness and are completely all right in the non-manliness.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's just an interesting—I have a completely personal theory that it's based on nothing at all, just my personal opinion. I think that the historians writing about Norse culture— Took their own bias, which was this concept that we discovered was, you know, pretty ancient. Right. And just applied it to them. Whereas I don't think that that necessarily was a thing that was a thing in there.
1: Right. I mean, because ultimately, if they're a couple, they're not trying to prove to anything, anybody outside the house who's more manly than the other.
0: Absolutely. And another side note. There's two stories of deities in the Norse religion following both Odin and Loki, where Ergi is represented, but Odin, the All Father, the big main, well, not necessarily main deity, but their big deity, performs adult fun time, where he is the submissive partner. Mm-hmm. And yet, still considered warrior deity, warrior Supreme. very strong, same thing. And Loki... Also, rumors of Ergi, but still considered, you know, the trickster still has a high place. Well, plenty manly. So that's why I personally don't think that that is an applied concept. I don't think that's necessarily a thing in that historical context. That does make
1: more sense. To me. Knowing plenty of couples, I can't say that to any of them, it is particularly important to establish dominance.
0: Yeah. Not in modern marriage. Not in modern, healthy.
1: Not in modern, healthy. Marriage. Healthy
0: relationships. It's a
1: whole separate side thing, and we'll we'll save that for a different podcast. You had a fourth. Those were our four. We combined the, the last two together.
0: Those two are, that's their story. All right. So those were the four.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. That was very entertaining, and I hope the rest of you nerds out there like the history as, as much as I do. And if not, you Absolutely. can, it's too late to give the disclaimer, go ahead and skip this one. But
0: <laughs> maybe we'll add that in the beginning. Who knows? <laughs> Oh, all
1: right. Well, thank you, Megan. I look forward to next time. Have a wonderful day. You too. So we went over in our conversation considerably. We are going to cut this episode in half, and you get the second half on our next episode.
0: This episode is brought to you by our patrons at Patreon. Mark, Alan, Rose, Bodil. These episodes would not be possible to create without the support of our generous patrons. If you'd like to be a patron, please follow the link in the description and sign up. Thank you.